within all scripture, there are so many subplots and small stories that oftentimes we don't focus on because there's a larger maybe story or theme at play. That is certainly the case with the scripture that we're going to be speaking on tonight. When you read this passage of scripture, uh, there's something very unique within it, but oftentimes we miss this one little unique thing because there's so much happening otherwise than what this unique thing is. So verse number 18, see if you pick up on it when we begin to read. But the Bible says in John 13, verse 18, Christ addressing his disciples says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Have you ever been to an awkward supper? You've just been at a meal maybe that something was said or maybe the meal seemed to be progressing just fine and then a statement was made that kind of turned the supper in a direction that nobody expected. I'll never forget me and preacher were seated around a table with a family who was hosting us. He was preaching at a church and uh, we were seated at this table. They were feeding us supper. And, and somehow we had gotten on the topic of the Lord's Supper. And we, he was a deacon. He had served the Lord's Supper earlier that day at church. And, and he was the guy that passed us the plate of both the bread and the, the grape juice there. And he passed it to us. And me and preacher just passed it on down. And and so we got on this topic and we wanted to make sure he understood because he didn't, their church didn't have the same beliefs we do on that particular matter. It's good beliefs, it's fine, whatever they want to do. But in this particular instance, we only take the Lord's Supper at our church, just like we only get baptized at our church. And those are the two ordinances of the local church. And so that's a local church thing. And and, it's, and other churches believe differently. It's certainly not something we separate over or criticize others for that belief. That's just what we believe. And, and we wanted to explain that to him, that we weren't being judgmental. We weren't critical of the way that they believed or, or their practices. They're close brothers in Christ. They believe almost everything else the same way we do. And so uh, we just want to explain to him why we did what we did. And I'll never forget... After explaining our belief, his wife said, Oh, that's dumb. I don't like that way. I like our way better. <laughs> Have you ever been at a supper where maybe like a statement was said and you didn't really know how to recover from that? And maybe you're like, Well, we appreciate you too and respect your beliefs in Christ. But we wouldn't call yours dumb, but whatever. You know, Have you ever been in that situation? Could you imagine being at this supper with our Lord as he's teaching and he's giving very deep doctrine and then all of a sudden he just stops. And the Bible says he's troubled within his spirit and something begins to really uh, uh, kind of affect him, his attitudes and his, his emotions and he just stops and says, one of you shall betray me. Could you imagine being at that supper? How awkward it must have been. The tension certainly could have been cut with a knife. He says, one of you shall betray me. I want you to see in verse number 22, the reaction of the disciples after hearing this obviously just frustrating news and they didn't know, they didn't have all the answers. They didn't know what to think about it. And so verse 22, the Bible says, then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. 
He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag that... Uh, that's the bag of money. He was. We kind of assumed the treasury of the or the treasurer of the first church, and uh, he kind of handled the financial matters. The Bible says that Jesus had said unto him, "Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor." In verse thirty, he then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. As I said earlier, we can sometimes read uh, stories in the Bible that have obviously a, a pretty easy application and the context is quite understandable when you first read it. But within each and every story like this, there are other things going on and other subplots at play that maybe we don't recognize at first glance. Did you recognize what it was? After hearing the news that one of the disciples would betray our Lord... Could you imagine the, the pandemonium that would ensue as one disciple looks at another disciple? If I could make a statement tonight that I knew without a shadow of a doubt, and I would say, one of you will leave this church in the next three weeks. I, don't, I have no way of knowing that, but obviously Christ did. If I could make that statement, would you imagine we would probably look around and be like, I bet it's them. <laughs> It's probably that one. <laughs> yeah, it's old so-and-so or Sister Slewfoot. I'm sure it's going to be her. And we, we began to like question and, and maybe on the car ride home. Can you believe Brother Andrew made that statement? I wonder who it's going to be. Well, I don't know who it's going to be, but I have my guesses. I mean, that's what we would do. And that is absolutely what the disciples were doing. They looked one onto another wondering who it was going to be. And with all this going on, the news that one of his disciples would betray our Lord, that's kind of what we focus on. We focus on the disciples' reaction and we focus on Judas and his reaction and his eventual departure. But oftentimes what I think we overlook is there is a beautiful picture of Christ's love embedded in this story. The disciple whom Jesus loved had his head on Jesus' bosom. And we miss that. We read over it all the time. But in the craziness of this setting, there is a disciple who is just choosing, instead of looking at others, instead of wondering what's going to happen, he has chosen to simply cover himself in the love and affection of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How close are you to your Savior? Have you ever noticed everybody has kind of a different definition of what close is? I'll tell you this. Parents who are picking their teenagers up from a youth activity have a different definition of close than what mine is. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Oh, well, we call the parent... Yeah, I'm on the way. I'm close. Okay, well, then we shouldn't be too much longer. 35 minutes later, the parent arrives. What was your definition of close? I could drive to North Fort Worth in 35 minutes. Where were you? You know who else has a different definition of what close means? The cable guy. Yeah, we'll be at your house between the hours of 2 and 2. You give a 24-hour period, do you? And if they did do that, they'd be late. They just have a different definition of what the word close means. And I say this only because she's in the nursery tonight, but wives have a different definition of what close is when they say, hey, supper's close to being done. Okay, so I shouldn't get a snack? No, don't get a snack. It's, it's close. Should have got a snack. I mean, we just, we do. We have different definitions of what that word means. But when I ask this question, I mean, are you close? 
I'm not talking about North Fort Worth close. I'm, not, I'm talking about how close are you to Jesus Christ? Because there are certainly advantages to that. I remember years ago we were at basketball practice and Brother Jim was our coach and, and we were shooting free throws. And if you've ever played basketball, uh, uh, you, you, when you line up in the free throw lines, you have one guy shooting and then you line up down the lane like you're going to rebound the ball. And, and so we were doing that to close out practice one day. And I'll never forget the lights in the gym shut off, completely blacked out. I don't know if you've ever been in the gym when it, it's dark, but there is no light, it, complete darkness. And so you cannot see anything. And so we're in this lineup where one guy's shooting free throws and I was on the bottom block I'm, I, and we're all standing in a line. Here's my first thought when this happens. If I do not move, somebody will go towards the light switch. Only because I know how dumb people are. The electricity is off. Why are we going to go to the light switch? The switch isn't going to do anything. But I knew somebody would head to the light switch. So instead of staying in the straight route to the light switch, I did this, one, two. Because I didn't want to walk anywhere. I just wanted to be protected from oncoming traffic. I'm standing there minding my own business and all of a sudden one of my teammates walks face to face into me. <laughs> At first this may not seem like a problem until the guy that walked into me is just a little bit taller than I am and his his forehead hit me right here above my right eye. And if you've ever watched a boxing match or something like that, most cuts that boxers get is right there above their eye. It's because their bone actually aids in cutting their skin. And so when he walked into me, my skin cut through and through all the way to, the, to my skull, basically. And I was gushing blood everywhere. Now, I'm not saying you've got to be that close, like face to face. But how close are you? How close are you to Christ? I'm going to say this, and I don't say this critically. I don't say this to shame you or to guilt you. But this is how close to Christ you are. Exactly how close you want to be. How close are you? Because there are advantages to being close to Christ. And tonight we're going to talk about three realities of what being close to Christ means. Number one, there is an assurance in storms that other people just don't have. When you are close to Christ, there's just a peace that passes all other understanding. I want you to see in verse 22. The Bible says, Then the disciples looked on one to another... Doubting of whom he spake. There's this concern. There's this frustration. They don't know what's going to go on. They don't know who he's talking about. And there's definitely an energy pro uh, promoted within the scripture here as everybody kind of glances back and forth. And then the Bible says, but there's another person. Almost not even included in the first group of disciples who are looking at the other disciples, wondering who it is. Then the Bible says in verse 23, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom he loved. See, John, the beloved disciple, he didn't have time to look around. He, it, it did him no good to glance and question and try to find answers to questions that he did not have. All he did was stay right where he knew to stay right close to Christ. I want you to see tonight, first of all, as we study this, the person of closeness. John would be a great study on being close to Jesus Christ. John, the, the Bible tells us, was previously a fisherman, as many of the other disciples were. He and his brother, uh, James, was part of. they were part of the inner circle of Jesus, so much so that James, John, and Peter were invited to the Mount of Transfiguration where, where Christ, for just a brief moment in time, just everything, as the preacher says, everything that was on the inside came out. And His glory, 
the glory of God shone through his flesh for just a moment in time. Peter, James, and John were the three of the disciples that got to be there and see that. What a wonderful day that would have been. Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord left all the disciples, but he invited Peter, James, and John just a little further, and he asked them to pray with him. And he went a little further, but you see throughout Scripture that there's an inner circle of Jesus, and Peter, James, and John are the three. James was his older brother, and they had this name. They were the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus gave them a name. It's a pretty unique name. In Greek, the word is this, boanergos. Now, don't ask me to say that again. I've got the phonetic pronunciation down here just so I can get it right. But boanergos, the Bible says in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them boanergos, which is the sons of thunder. Now, the Bible doesn't even give us much information on what that means, but Jesus gave them a nickname. I remember like trying to be young and, and, and or when I was younger, trying to start my own nickname. Maybe, maybe you did it too. My, my initials are A-N-W. A-N-W. Which sounds eerily similar to A-N-W, right? So I always wanted to be called Root Beer. Not because it was a clever nickname, but I just thought it worked because my initials were A-N-W. I, I never, it never launched, okay? Nobody ever took to it. But Jesus, as far as I know, only gave these guys a nickname. The Sons of Thunder. Now, their daddy's name wasn't Thunder, it was Zebedee. He gave them a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. And we don't really know exactly why, but most people are pretty united in this fact. They think it was because they were so zealous. And when they acted, they didn't always think. I want you to take your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 and I'll uh, illustrate what I mean about these two men not really acting before they think or act or say something. Luke chapter 9, verse 43, you, you have John say two different things here and Jesus has to immediately correct him. And, and say, no, John, that's not the way I handle things. That's not the way that, uh, that you should handle things either. Verse number 43 of John chapter 9, the Bible says, And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered, every one at the th- all the things that Jesus did, He said unto His disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son man shall be delivered into the hands of men, But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, and they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. (laughs) After hearing these words that Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and that eventually he would have to die for their sins, here's what their conversation prompted and turned to. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest? And let me just stop here. There is no greatest person in this church. We should not seek to climb the spiritual ladder or seek positions of authority or leadership. That is so anti-Christ, I cannot tell you. For the Son of Man came not to uh, to to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. You see... It is so Christ-like to serve with a heart of gladness. And yet the disciples here, they, they debate and argue. Well, I'm going to be greater than you and I'm going to be able to do this. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child. He's going to teach them an object illustration here. And he puts the child in his lap and, and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whomsoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. After hearing this lesson, we find verse number 49, John's reaction. And John kind of wanting to add, Yeah, well, Jesus, this is how zealous I am for you. This is what I'm willing to do for you. And John answered and said, Master... We saw one casting out devils in thy name. 
And we forbade him. We made him stop because he followeth not with us. In other words, he wasn't willing to become part of our traveling group, so we made him stop his, his actions. Jesus, obviously it couldn't be of you if uh, he's not part of our group. And let's see Jesus' reaction. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. What a lesson that is. And man, how that could be preached in every church around the nation. He that is not against us is for us. Uh, Moving forward in verse number 51, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go towards Jerusalem. Jesus makes a decision to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans. So on their way to Jerusalem, they have to go through a Samaritan village to make ready for him. So maybe they were stopping in one night, maybe they're getting a, a hotel room or something to stay in this town, and then the next day proceed to Jerusalem. And the Bible says, And they did not receive him. Because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Obviously, if you've studied your Bible at all, there's great tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews hate the Samaritans because they consider them half-breeds of sorts. They think they're lesser of a people. They look down on them. They judge them. They criticize them. And, and yet, Jesus didn't feel that way. I mean, at the end of the day, he, he told his disciples, no, we must needs go through Samaria. Why? So he could meet the Samaritan woman and lead her to Christ. I mean, and what a wonderful story that is. But, but because of the Jews' attitude towards the Samaritans, I'm sure that some of that was reciprocated, right? They didn't like the Jews because the, Samarit- the Jews didn't like them. And because Jesus is a Jew and he's going to Jerusalem, they say, no, you can't stay in our town. You're a Jew. And you want to go to Jerusalem? No, you're not welcome here. Okay, so all this, you got the story. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this. Who is this? This is the sons of thunder, right? You with me? These are the guys, the sons of thunder. And when they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would not uh, go to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Whoa, that escalated quickly. I mean, because they said, at the end of the day, Jesus is very accustomed to having no room for him in the end, right? It was the first thing that he ever heard when he came to this earth. There's no room for you. So this is kind of commonplace for Jesus. But, but the disciples were so insulted, specifically James and John, that they wouldn't receive their master that he said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and just wipe them off the face of the earth? I mean, this is getting crazy. Verse number uh, 53, uh, 55. But he turned and rebuked them. And said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Boy, how Jesus handles problems is so different than how we often want to handle problems. i got to be honest with you. I'd have probably been in line with James and John here. You don't want to welcome the King of glory? You don't want to welcome the Savior of the world? Well, we'll just show you. And Christ says, guys, let's just move on. We can learn a lot from the life of Christ. And let me say this, John did. Because you have this reaction in just the same chapter of the Bible, and then you fast forward to the end of Christ's ministry, and Christ says this, one of you will betray me. Can I say it this way? I, I, I can't prove this, but the old John probably would have said, well, what can I do to fix that? You just tell me who it is, Lord. I won't even have to call down thunder. I'll introduce him to thunder and lightning. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, that would have probably been John. But something's different in our story now. He hears this news, one of you shall betray me. All the other disciples look around and John doesn't even lift his head from the chest of our Savior. 
Why is that? Why would he not even worry about it? Well, maybe he had learned this principle. That when you're close to Christ, problems that are out of your control are better better handled in his control. All you got to do is stay close to Christ. When you don't have answers to the questions that are being asked, you just keep your head where it belongs, right next to Christ. Just stay close to Jesus. Psalm chapter 91, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Amen. You have big problems in your life. They're not bigger than Christ. And the way you learn how big your your Savior is is you just stay right next to Him. How close are you to Jesus? Not only will we see the person of Christ, a uh, uh, person of closeness, but we'll see secondly the pattern of closeness. The pattern of closeness. Back in our original text in John chapter 13, John is referred to as the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Six different times in this book alone, John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the beloved disciple. Now, can we all agree tonight that Christ loves all of his disciples? Jesus loves even me, okay? He loves us all. But there was something special about John's relationship. I don't believe Christ loves any of us more, but John just understood the depth of Christ's love so much that he wanted to become known for that. He wanted to become known as the disciple who loved Jesus and who he understood was unworthy, but Christ loved him too. That's what he became known for. And what what I see here is I see John just doing what I expect John always did. You say, what do I mean? You see, it's so easy to desire closeness to Christ when we need him. I think this would have been a pretty reasonable time to want to be close to Jesus. Guys, I'm going to be betrayed tonight. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and I'm going to be executed for the sins of humanity. This was a problem for men that had given their lives to follow Jesus. And so this would have seemed like a good time to be close to Christ. But you know what I believe? I believe John was the disciple who put his head on Christ's chest even after the good days. You know, like the feeding of 5,000, where the loaves and the fishes are miraculously multiplied and everybody has food so much so that they took doggy bags home. I mean, that's great. And, and, and maybe a day when the leopards are cleansed and the blinded eyes are made to see and the cripples can, can walk. I mean, one of those fantastic, like, mountaintop Christianity days. You know what I believe John did at the end of the day? put his head on his chest. Because there should be a pattern of closeness in our life. You don't just snuggle up to Christ when you need him. Because a wise Christian understands we need him all the time. It's not only when we don't have answers. It's not only when the storms of life are rocking our boat so hard that we can't can't make our way. We need Jesus all the time. We ought to have a pattern of closeness. And you know what I've learned in my life? When I consistently stay close to Christ, it's easy to trust Him in the rocky days. You know, like when Daniel knows that the decree had been signed, the Bible says when Daniel learned that the decree had been signed, he opened his windows, went out on his balcony and prayed, and the Bible says these exact words, as he did aforetime. Look, this wasn't just a statement that he made. This wasn't just, you know, well, now that the decree's been made, I've really got to step up my Christianity. No, his Christianity had been stepped up all the time. He had been staying close to Jesus all the time. So that's why it was easy for him to do it in his difficult days. The person of closeness and the pattern of closeness. You see, when you stay close to Christ, there is an assurance in storms that is unexplainable. There's an assurance knowing that Christ can handle any problem that you may have 
and assurance in your storms. The second reality of being close to Christ is this. You have a privilege to speak. Notice with me in verse number 24. Now this is... I, I don't know even how I can explain it to you. I don't know the reasoning behind it. I, I try to let you decide for yourself. But in verse 24, after hearing the words that Jesus said, One of you shall betray me. After looking at all the disciples and not being able to come to a conclusion as to who it might be, verse number 24 says, Simon Peter, therefore beckon to him. Who's that? Oh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who had his uh, head on the bosom of Christ. And that disciple, Peter, beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Let me ask you a Bible question. Was Peter ever short on words? <laughs> no. Did Peter always control his mouth when he should? Peter was one of those guys that, you know, wished he had a backspace button in real life. Like, he said something, he's like, immediately, backspace, 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 but it's too late. That was Peter. But there was something about this moment that Peter understood he was not qualified for. I don't know why, but Simon Peter, the guy who seems to be the boldest of all the disciples, leans down to John and says, hey, you should ask him. Why? Why doesn't Peter just ask? Do you think this is one of those things where like the older brother gets the younger brother to go ask mom and dad a difficult question? And hey, can we have some cookies? Do you think it's like that? Like Peter throwing John under the bus or something? Or maybe Peter understood that the relationship that John had with Jesus made him have a privilege to ask questions that Peter didn't have. Are you telling me that your proximity to Christ matters when it comes to your prayers to Christ? I think throughout Scripture you can find that sin separates man from God. I believe that you can study the Bible for about approximately three chapters and understand that the first sin in the Garden of, Geth or Garden of Eden separated men from God, right? It's quite an easy thing to understand, but, but sin separates us from the presence of God. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 34, because of the nation of Israel's sin with the golden calf, God says, I will send an angel before you, but my presence will not go with you. And that was obviously devastating news for Moses, and you can study that passage out. But the presence of God is grieved when sin is involved in a Christian's life. So sin separates from the presence of a God. Sin separates us from the power of God. The Bible says that uh, we should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby we are sealed unto the day of redemption. You know how the Christian accesses the power of God in everyday life? It is through the Holy Spirit given power. You ought not grieve the Holy Spirit by allowing sin into your life. Remember that story of Samson where he finally gave up the, you know, the remedy for how he could have his strength stolen? Delilah finally cuts his hair and she says, Samson, Samson. This is my best like Delilah impression. Samson, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. It's a really a sad story. Samson gets up and I don't fully understand this, but maybe there's some Bible application, but the Bible says that Samson shook himself. Like maybe it was like his calisthenics before he went to battle. I don't know, but he shook himself and then the Bible says, I will go out as other times before. He just thought this was an everyday battle that he was going to go out there and just, just do what he always did. But the Bible has this little footnote that you ought not ever miss, Christian. And he wished not that the Lord had departed from him. Meaning he didn't know that God's blessing and God's power was no longer on his life. Christian... It is so easy to lose God's power because of sin that we allow into our lives. 
what sin or what sin are you sacrificing God's power to? How important is that sin to you that you would just lay aside any claim to the daily provision of God's power on your life? Sin separates us from the presence of God and from the power of God, and it also separates us from the provision of God. Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, they all sang a very similar tune to the nation of Israel when they had allowed sin into their lives and idolatry. Isaiah said it like this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither His ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you, uh, separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear you. Your prayer life is directly affected by sin in your life. You study the Bible very long, you understand that sin separates you from God. So if that's the backside to the coin, that sin separates us from God, would being close to God access all the privileges and benefits that come along with being a Christian? You know, the, the privileges like God hearing and answering prayer. The privileges of being an overcomer and a conqueror in our daily lives and living in the promised land of victorious Christian living and not the sinful land of Egypt. That would be the Christian life that God has all of us envisioned for and yet we often sacrifice that because of sin that separates us from God. How close are you to God? I'm going to make a statement and I try staying away from universal statements. But you cannot be close to God and living in sin. But you can be close to God and, and, and access all the wonderful privileges that He has to offer you. You know, there's not a promise in the Bible that you cannot lay claim to if you'll just stay close to God. We have the privilege of having a, a reason, uh, an opportunity to speak. That's what John did. He just looked up and he saw, hey, I can speak. Peter recognized it. John can ask questions that I cannot ask. Your relationship with Christ matters. Today at the dodgeball tournament, thank you, by the way, if you served in it or if you came to it. What a blessing it was to see our church family united and, and just having a good time. And You know, there wasn't a cuss word said, at least audibly. And uh, uh, I saw my sister, but it was just really loud at one point, so I, I couldn't see. But, but I don't think there was a cuss word said. There was definitely no uh, issues that I didn't want my kids being around. It was just a good time today. But I'll never forget when I was going around the crowd before the, game, before the dodgeball started, I had to find some kids to help me with the post-it note game. So I, I went around, uh, I found a little Spanish department girl and I asked her to be a part of it. And then, and then I think the Odell kid, he, Jonas, he said, hey, can I be a part of it? I said, sure, Jonas. And I went around and I found a couple other kids. And then we only had about eight stacks of post-it notes and so... I couldn't invite any more people up. And then another kid came up to me. I, I'm not sure. I think it was a Burge, one of the Burge kids. And they came up to me and they said, Hey, can I be a part of the game? I was like, Nope, out of supplies. Nope, can't do it. And then I was walking around and my daughter, Caitlin, came up to me and said, Daddy, can I be a part of the kid game? Oh... I need to speak to you, Burge kid. I mean, I was going to remove the Odell kid from the game so my kid could play. Boy, that was hard. And I got down and I actually knelt down by Caitlin there and I said, Caitlin, you can't play in the game. We, we already have the game full. It's already, I would, you know, it's just we already have the game full. She said, well, can I play it later? I mean... Man, my heartstrings were strumming, brother. I mean, it was painful to look at this little sweet girl asking to play the game, and I'm thinking, man, I wish I could answer you yes. You see, I didn't matter so much when it was just a Burge kid. <laughs> <laughs> 
Don't take that wrong. I mean, we don't want the Burges leaving the church. We love the Burge family. But it was just different when my, my child asked me the question. You see, your relationship matters. The Bible instructs us in John chapter 15, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. That's verse number 4. Verse number 7, it says this, If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, listen to this, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Hey, your relationship with Christ matters and it directly correlates to the effectiveness of your prayer life. You have a privilege to ask when you're close to Christ and a boldness to ask that just other people don't have. How close are you to Jesus? There's nothing sweeter in this world, no greater privilege or honor than to be close to Jesus Christ. The third reality of a relationship with Christ is this. It gives you a reason to stay. A reason to stay. Verse number 21, Jesus tells them that one of the disciples would betray him. And it seems so painfully obvious who it's going to be, doesn't it? I mean, you're almost like, it's like when you're watching a TV show and, and they, you know they shouldn't go down the dark alley and you're shouting at your TV screen, don't go to the dark alley! That's where the dudes with the knives hang out. Don't go there, right? You, 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 it's painfully obvious what the answer is. Jesus says, one of you shall betray me. And John asked this question, who is it, Lord? And Jesus said, it's going to be the one who I sought bread and hand it to him. Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? He sops the bread, hands it to Judas. I... I can just imagine what was going through Judas's mind as he knew Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Jesus looks at him and says, what you're going to do, go and do it quickly. You've already made this decision. I know what you're going to do. Go and do it. And yet the disciples sit around and they say, yeah, he's just saying that because Judas has to go get food for the Passover. Judas has to go, you know, take care of the financial matters. And yet they didn't understand. But in all of this story, the thing that becomes abundantly clear is in order to betray Jesus, listen to me, don't miss this, you have to leave Jesus. Are you with me? How hard would it have been for John to be the betrayer? Where's John at? Oh, his head is welded to the chest of Christ. He's, he's right next to him. How could John betray him? He hasn't left his presence. What kind of scheme can you devise when you're right next to the person who you're going to betray? You know why Judas found time to sneak away? Because he didn't know Christ. He wasn't close to Christ. And might I remind you that there was only one disciple at the foot of the cross. You know who that was? John. All the other disciples had betrayed Christ and had abandoned him and weren't there at the crucifixion. And yet we find John, the beloved disciple, sitting at the foot of the cross and Jesus gives him a, a, a jurisdiction or, or a, a provisional care over his mother. That's why John was there. You want to know why John was there? Because he was always close to Christ. He so stayed close to Christ that in Christ's darkest moment when everyone else had turned his back on, the, on Christ, John did not. And here's what the problem is in churches today. Everybody thinks, well, I'll never be that guy. I think the Bible says something about pride and a haughty spirit, doesn't it? <laughs> Leads to destruction and goes before a fall, I think the Bible says. I'll never be the person that leaves church or abandons my faith. How close are you to Christ? You tell me that answer and I'll tell you if you're one of the uh, prospects of leaving the church and leaving Jesus Christ. You tell me that answer, I'll tell you my answer. 
Because when you stay close to Christ, it gives you a reason to stay working and serving and loving Christ. The moment you begin to separate from Him, that gives you all kinds of opportunities to leave His will because you can do whatever you want at that point. You say, oh, it's not going to be me, Brother Andrew. I'm, I'm too well-intentioned. I know what I believe. I've been raised in church. I think one of the team captains came up to me today and he counted out all the members' years of membership here at the church. And he said, just on my team alone, I have 115 years of Joshua Baptist Church membership. That's pretty cool. But I'm telling you right now, there is not one person in this room. Do not think you are the exception. There is not one person in this room so committed to the cause of Christ that you would never leave Christ. We're all just a couple bad decisions and one horrific tragedy away from deserting what we've known and believed all of our lives. And the only remedy for that is staying next to Jesus, loving Him with all of your heart. You say, oh, it'll never be me, Brother Andrew. I look around this room. You know how Baptists sit in the same spots all the time? Except for the Dyer family. I mean, she's like, boom, boom, boom. And she does everything else. But pretty much we all kind of have our spots that have our names on them. And by names, I mean imprints. Uh, that's where we sit. We kind of get comfortable where we are. And that's fine. Well, I can tell you, looking around this room tonight, I can point to spots that used to be filled. And listen to me, they weren't bad people. They didn't, they didn't have a, you know, they weren't counterfeit. They didn't want to abandon the faith, but something in their life separated them. Oh, it'll never be me, Brother Andrew. That's exactly what they thought. The only solution to fix this is staying close to Jesus. How close are you to Jesus Christ? Exactly as close as you want to be. I read a story the other day about a man by the name of Robert Robinson. His mother didn't love him very much, apparently. Robert Robinson. Robert Robinson grew up in 17th century England. He was an incredibly rowdy individual as a teenager. In fact, the story is told one day of him as he and a bunch of his friends heckled and, 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 and just really bullied a gypsy lady. And they began to pour alcohol on her and criticize her and they demanded that she tell them their fortunes for free as they did all this. I don't know if she told a fortune that day, but she said something that affected Robert. She looked at him and said, you're going to live to see your children and your grandchildren. See, this affected Robert because he began to consider what he would be as an older man. He realized he couldn't stay a teenager all of his life, and he was going to be a father and eventually a grandfather. He needed to start living in a way that was respectable. So Robert made a decision to go to the only place he knew to accomplish this feat. He went to hear a Methodist preacher by the name of George Whitfield. He was concerned, though, that, you know how we do, he kind of was concerned that he might, in a weak moment, make a decision that he didn't want to live with. So he asked all of his buddies, the same buddies that were heckling the, the gypsy lady, he asked all of them to come with him, and they were going for the sole purpose, or at least they thought, of ridiculing and causing a commotion at the service. Preacher by the name of George Whitfield that day preached out of Matthew chapter number 3. It was this text. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It was one of those edifying sermons. <laughs> you imagine that. It was amazing, but Robert actually avoided making a decision that day, but he lived with the conviction for three years before coming to know Christ as his Savior. At the age of 20, he finally made that decision and actually surrendered to become a Methodist preacher himself. Two years later, he wrote this song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. 
In that song, there's a phrase. You probably know this phrase maybe more than you do the actual song, but this stanza of the song reads like this. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And I don't necessarily know what Robert was alluding to, but I think if you've been a Christian very long, you kind of understand what he was talking about. It is said years later, and to be honest with you, this story cannot be verified, but it is said years later when Robert was riding in a carriage with a, a young lady, she was humming this song. She did not know who Robert was and didn't know that he was the author of the song, and so she was humming it, and she said, What do you think about that song? This is Robert's exact words. He said, Madam... I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote the hymn that that many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. I asked you earlier if you've ever been in a conversation or a dinner where something took a turn that you weren't expecting. I'm sure that little young lady would have preferred him to just say, Oh, I love the tune. Or, man, those words are sure deep. Instead, Robert looked at her and said, I am the unhappy man that wrote those words, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them, if I could feel the feelings that I had when I wrote it. It is said that that young lady looked at him and said, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. What Robert had lost all those years ago, that woman hadn't lost. She understood that a relationship with Christ for him and for her was just as acceptable today as it was back when he wrote the song. I don't know how close to Christ you are, but may I just tell you, the streams of mercy are still flowing. How close to Christ are you? Exactly how close you want to be. And as I close this sermon, the only encouragement that I have for each and every person in this room, man, woman, and child, teenager, older person, the only encouragement I have for you is there is no person in this room that loves Christ the way that we ought to. There is no person in this room that lives for Him the way that we ought to. How close to Christ are you? The answer is this, not nearly as close as I should be or as I want to be. There is nothing preventing you from being like John and placing your head on his bosom tonight and enjoying the embrace of a loving heavenly Savior.